0: i have the opener this week in true chelsea fashion this is not going to be a regular opener i wanted to put this into an actual episode but there wasn't enough to make it in an episode but it's like a fun little cryptidy weird oddity opener that i'm making it just now i've declared so let us just read the article this comes from the daily herald may 22nd 2011 is the date that most people around the town of joplin missouri remember very well it was on that day that an f5 tornado destroyed 900 homes killed 161 people and left a landscape behind that resembled a foreign landscape on a barren planet what you wouldn't see reported in the mainstream media about this event were the descriptions of the butterfly people these stories were mainly told by small children to parents in hospital waiting rooms, standing in line for water or donated food, and to the Red Cross counselors. Multiple children of varied ethnicities and socioeconomic status told eerily similar stories of seeing beautiful humanoid creatures with wings hovering over certain children and parents in that storm in a protective manner. They were described as colorful and pretty, so children called them butterfly people. Most of these stories had common elements. the tornado hit their home often parents were praying the roof was ripped off children saw a butterfly person descended down from the sky and covering them with wings those particular children usually emerged from the wreckage in good condition another version states that children saw butterfly people carrying other kids and adults up into the heavens the ones who didn't make it out alive presumably their souls about one half of the children were counseled at Joplin child trauma treatment centers set up in the schools afterwards the clinical director, Daniel Robinson, heard these stories firsthand from many different children. Many of these children stated that they somehow knew these butterfly people were there to calm them and help keep them safe really cool little story. It took place a while ago. This basically summarizes everything that happened with it. Basically, there's a tornado, kids saw butterfly people carrying people to safety, or up into the sky. Wouldn't make for a whole episode.
1: I'm actually suspecting that this came up in your moth person research.
0: It didn't actually. come up on a Reddit thread. Okay. Yeah, but I can see why you would think that.
1: I also think that the population that is telling us this is a little bias in how the butterfly people were helping them, in the sense that only the people who survived the tornado will believe that the butterfly people were there to protect them, not the people who died. So who may have been, in fact, killed by the butterfly people.
0: <laughs> okay, this might be a much more alarming article of killer butterfly people.
1: Tornadoes are now equipped with killer butterfly people. Yes.
0: yes. which is if Only uh, target like some butterfly. people. <laughs> they save some, kill others like a remarkably large amount, 161 people. And with that, we all have a new fear of tornadoes unloading butterfly people to wreak havoc and steal our souls.
1: And with that, I think we can get into this episode.
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to journey to the fringe some may say the most important media ever created by humanity yeah. which is why it's important to look at qualifying words in promotions we are your fringy hype team taylor and chelsea and today we are here talking about that little recurring theme of reincarnation not recurring with us just with nature as it is if you believe in it it's probably recurring with us let's lay it out i'm going to look at some of the researchers that have been looking at this I'm going to talk about their process and then we're going to look at some examples that they've looked at around the world. I am going to say a few things right off the bat that I think need to be addressed. All cases I could find are reincarnation examples of people reincarnating as people, which is only a small sect of people who believe in reincarnation believe that it's exclusively in that way. The second part, we're going to be talking about reincarnation. There are definitely downsides to groups of people who believe in reincarnation out there. I specifically want to make note of the Indian people's belief in the caste system, where the lowest group of people are born into that caste because they did bad things in their previous life. The untouchables are treated absolutely awful because the people who believe in the caste system believe that they deserve that awful treatment from what they did in past lives. It is absolutely terrible and not something that should be done. We are just going to be looking at this as a fun thought and nothing outside of that. So do not treat people like shit because you think that they deserve it from what they did in past lives. I just need to get that out there right off the
0: bat. You're not allowed to do your own karma. That's up to the universe. And just a quick note, I have read Dolores Cannon. I do like her. She has a lot of books. She talks about, one of the things she has in her books is about reincarnation. And she does talk about and have people who go back through regression, I believe it is. It's been a lot of years now since I read The Convoluted Universe. And there's many, many other books after this. She does talk about people reincarnating Incarnated from animals okay people who have memories of it
1: yeah no um and that is actually something i'm going to talk well i don't really talk about but i should have touched on we'll talk about it now i am only talking about at this point non-regressed memories like these are ones that children have of their previous life okay or what they state is their previous life past life regression is a completely different category as well as adult reincarnation memories which is a completely different category okay that we could talk about at a later date
0: I'm glad we clarified that. Okay.
1: All we're talking about right now is children who believe they are born and reincarnated from somebody else.
0: Okay. I like these regressions or not regressies. These you stories. Said regression yeah, these not non-regressive stories. Yeah. <laughs> I love the, the children's stories. I think they're really cool.
1: Yeah. And there's some interesting ones and at the end we're going to talk about some interesting research that's gone on in this area as well. Nice. But without further ado there have actually been quite a few researchers who have looked into the subject. We're going to be focus on, on just a select few of them. The most important one we're going to be talking about is Ian Stevenson. He received his bachelor in science in 1940. He then enrolled in McGill Medical School, and he completed a four-year program in three years and graduated the top of his class in 1943. He was a professor at the University of Virginia School of Medicine for 50 years, and he was a chair of their department of psychiatry from 1957 to 1967, Carlson Professor of Psychiatry from 1967 to 2001, and Research Professor of Psychiatry from 2002 and until his death in 2007. As a founder of, and director of the University of Virginia School of Medicine's Division of Perceptual Studies, which investigates the paranormal, Stevenson became known for his research into cases he considered suggestive of reincarnation. The idea that emotions, memories, and even physical bodily features can be passed on from one incarnation to another. In the course of his 40 years doing international fieldwork, he researched 3,000 cases of children who claimed to remember past lives. His position was that certain phobias, philias, unusual abilities and illnesses could not be fully explained by genetics or the environment. He believed that in addition to genetics and the environment, reincarnation might possibly provide a third contributing factor. Stevenson helped to found the Society for Scientific Exploration in 1982 and was the author of around 300 papers and 14 books on reincarnation, including probably his most prominent book, which is called 20 Cases Suggested for Reincarnation, written in 1966. Cool. And I should say right off the bat, I pulled a lot of my research from a website called Psi Encyclopedia, P S I Encyclopedia. They have absolutely excellent articles. It's basically the Wikipedia for the psychic and paranormal phenomena. So, um, if you are looking to do more research into this, or you find these stories interesting, there are so many more to look at that I just like I couldn't include everything, and I had to look at just a select
0: group. Well, of course.
1: We're also going to be talking about James Matlock, who earned his English Bachelor of Arts from Emory University in 1977. In 1983, Matlock began postgraduate work in library sciences at the University of Maryland, concentrating in archives. He received his Master's of Library Sciences in 1985 and was offered this job of librarian and archivist at the American Society for Psychical Research in New York. In 1989, he was commissioned to organize the collection of J.B. Ryan's Parapsychology Laboratory at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. his library science work, Matlock wrote a survey of archival collections in parapsychology, which was later published. While working as ASPR's librarian and archivist, he began writing papers on the history of parapsychology and wrong reincarnation. He published the introduction to his inventory of Rhine's Parapsychology Laboratory records in 1991. Jim B. Tucker was born Goldsboro, North Carolina on January 1st, 1960. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology in 1982 and completed his MD training in 1986, both at the University of Carolina Chapel Hill. He then took a postgraduate training in general psychiatry and child psychiatry at UVA, become board certified in both in 1992. He stayed in the town of Charlottesville to begin a successful psychiatric practice. Currently, Tucker serves at UVA as Bonner Lowry Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences and Director of DOPS, where he and the DOPS research team continue investigating along the same lines as Stevenson, but with an emphasis on American cases. He oversees the ongoing computerization of the 2,500 cases recorded by Stevenson and other researchers using Stevenson's protocols. And last, Carol Bowman's cases. She has two books that are important for this, Children's Past Lives and Return from Heaven, about reincarnation, and she has been published more than 23 languages however she seems to be like she would be the one who shows up on daytime tv as the expert on this thing whereas these other people actually seem to be like professors on the subject so I actually give her the least credence but she just comes up in a few of the cases we're going to talk about
0: yeah I mean you could still get legitimate things
1: oh you can it's just I found her the least credible of everybody we're going to be like mm-hmm. all these those investigators yeah the other about. ones
0: seem fairly decorated
1: they have several degrees and they are coming from it with a very systematic point of view Mm -hmm. after that i want to give you an overview of what they describe reincarnation to be so reincarnation cases share many common features and patterns the common features include dreams announcing rebirth birthmarks and other congenital physical traits behavioral traits and past life memories there also may be memories of intermission periods between lives during which the parents may be chosen some children recall being a member of the opposite sex the previous lives generally passed in the same region ethnic and religious group as the present life, only occasionally were they in any other country. Also, most of the recalled lives ended not long before the present life began. Stevenson reports, a median of only 15 months in a series of 616 child cases, predominantly from Asia and the Middle East. However, there are cultural differences on some variables, particularly on the length of the intermission and the relative frequency of different types of relationships, if they're family, acquaintance, or strangers that were being reincarnated. Between the case, subject, and the person whose life is recalled. Several kinds of behavior memories figure in children's reincarnation cases. Not infrequently, the children's subjects show the sort of emotional attachment and reactions that one would expect from the person whose life they recall. Some enact that person's avocation or death in their play. They may also display intense fears or phobias concerning people, places, or things related to the way the previous life ended. Erlender Herladsen, who conducted psychological tests on children with past life memories, discovered that many who were called dying violently displayed symptoms of what looked like post-traumatic stress disorder, the sort of reaction one might expect from persons who had survived the experience. Children who were called dying as adults often act as if they are much older than they are. Many children show precocious interest in cigarettes, alcohol, or sex. Which is a whole other thing. Yeah. Curiously, in reincarnation cases, there may be behavioral differences between twins who grow up together, contrary to what many psychologists expect. Once they have a case they want to actually look at for reincarnation, this is their process. So researchers of past life memories cases usually start out by interviewing the child and the child's family. They learn about the statements the children have made about a past life. They also inquire about any possible connection between the child's family and the deceased individual. Whether that person has been identified and whether the child has had any opportunity to learn about the previous life. In cases that include birthmarks or birth defects, additional work is required. The child is examined and the marks or defects are photographed the family is asked when they were first noticed, whether there are other family members with similar ones, and whether the mother and fetus were exposed to known causes of defects. The researchers then interview the deceased individual's family, they judge how well the child's statements match the previous life, and whether the family knows of any access the child might have had to the material regarding the deceased person. In the cases with birthmarks and birth defects, they attempt to determine with as much precision as they can what wounds the previous person suffered. In order to assess how well they correspond to the child's marks or defects. Researchers obtain autopsy records when possible, though often there are unavailable or non-existent. Stevenson reported that he had obtained an autopsy report in 49 out of 210 cases. When no report is available, researchers interview firsthand eyewitnesses who saw the wounds on the body of the deceased. So that's just a little overview of everything. Stevenson did a lot of work in non-Western countries, specifically India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka i'm trying to keep it as much in the western world as i can so we are going to talk about a few of stevenson's cases but for the most part it's going to be other cases that are going to come up
0: he's also researching it in countries that that's predominantly their belief
1: yeah that comes up a lot in their culture
0: not that it doesn't come up here as i'm sure you'll tell us like you said but
1: One thing I found interesting that did come up, it is so common in their culture that reincarnation does happen, that you might actually mark a body with ash or ink so that it forms a birthmark or a mark ah. on a, a baby, so that you know who they're reincarnating as, which is super weird.
0: That is super weird. But I mean, if that's such a part of your belief system, you gotta be willing to try anything. You just hope they're not mangling bodies.
1: We're gonna cut off this arm so that the <laughs> yeah. body it reincarnates in doesn't have its <laughs> just arm. Simple pinky. as that. <laughs> But with that bit of overview, we're going to go over some cases, a lot of them really short. Uh, Carol Bowman investigated this return of a woman as her great-granddaughter seven years after her death.
0: Oh, in the family.
1: Yes, it is the case of Dee Klepper. Dee's mother and her grandmother had a contentious relationship. After her grandmother's death, Dee's mother dreamed several times of her grandmother, but each time the woman was going away from her. Then when she became pregnant with Dee, she began to dream of the woman coming towards her. When she was about seven months into her pregnancy, she started to sense her presence. She considered the possibility of reincarnation, but had read that there was invariably a lengthy period between lives and so dismissed it. When she first held Dee, she was overwhelmed with a feeling of familiarity. Still, reincarnation was so far from her expectation that she did not credit the sensation for long. But when Dee reached two years of age, she began to behave more and more like her great-grandmother, and to recognize places and people her great-grandmother had known. When a friend gave her three cats, she named them Jenny, Layla, and Lester, which her mother later found on a family genealogy. Jenny, Layla, was Dee's great-grandmother's sister, and Lester was her brother. At this point, Dee's mother could no longer doubt that Dee was her great-grandmother come back. That's the story. And that's why I give Carol Bowman kind of the least credit of all of the people that we were talking about. Oh, that was a
0: Carol Bowman story?
1: Yeah, that's a Carol Bowman story. So that's, uh... I could see why you said that about her. Yeah, And it relies on a, a very odd coincidence, but a coincidence nonetheless.
0: Yes. That's what I was going to say. It doesn't seem like something you can scientifically, like it's just a neat little story.
1: This next case is known as Bobby Hodges It was independently investigated by both Jim Tucker and Carol Bowman. Bobby's first word was cousin, and he talked frequently about wanting to live with his cousins. The significance of this began to emerge when he was four years old. One night after his bath, he asked his mother if she remembered when he and his younger brother Donald had been in her tummy together. She replied that they had not been in her tummy together, but he insisted that they had, although they had not been born. Gradually, it became clear that he was referring to a miscarriage his aunt had suffered when she was carrying twins, seven years before his birth. Oh, creepy. Bobby said that he had tried to return to his aunt but found her womb already occupied. Indeed, she had become pregnant shortly after the miscarriage with one of Bobby's cousins. Bobby accused Donald of causing the miscarriage and demanded to know why. At which, Donald took his dummy out of his mouth and yelled, I wanted daddy. Bobby also correctly described his parents' wedding, which had occurred while his mother was pregnant with him. He wanted to know why he had been born by cesarean section. His mother explained that this had oh was because he had been in a face up possible posterior position had he turned over he could have been born normally oh i didn't know that said bobby i would have turned <laughs> over but i thought they were trying to push me back in <laughs> like i just found that one so weird it needed to be
0: weird. that one is super creepy and hilarious a, <laughs> and he's fighting with his cousin <laughs> yeah he, he wanted to be born into that family i really like that story that's good <laughs> <watched laughs> the that shitty second family <laughs> that is super creepy but i like that that's a i i like that one
1: this next one is a child by the name of chad luke and it was independently investigated by carol bowman and then jim tucker and ian stevenson together investigated this one james had been in good health until at 18 months his cancer took hold. He began to have trouble walking and fell, fracturing his tibia, and afterwards walked with a limp. The neuroblastoma was confirmed by an autopsy, taken from swelling in his scalp above his right ear. His left eye protruded and was thought to have bled slightly. Because he was having trouble eating, doctors placed an intravenous tube in his throat, leaving a linear scar across the right side of his neck, by the time of his death seven months later, James was blind in his left eye and his facial features were distorted.
0: I had a feeling I feel like it's gonna come as a birth defect or birthmark.
1: Chad was born blind in his left eye, with his and his face was asymmetrical. He had a linear birthmark resembling a surgical scar across his neck. He also had a cyst on the right side of his head, behind his ear, in the place the biopsy had been performed on James. When Chad began to walk, it was with a limp, although no physical reason could be found for it. Starting when he was about four and a half years old, he related many memories of James. He gave an accurate description of the flat in which he had lived as James, and wanted to return there to play with James's toys. He also accurately described the biopsy on James's scalp and recalled not being able to drink without vomiting. He identified a picture of James as one as himself. His mother and others who knew James noticed that Chad had a personality very similar to James's. His mother followed Bowman's advice to acknowledge this link to James, after which Chad developed some sight in his left eye. At age six, he began to talk less about his memories of James'. This is James Leninger. James Leninger is the subject of what may be the most famous child reincarnation case. His parents documented his memories and their successful efforts to verify them in a book, Soul Survivor. The case was investigated by Jim Tucker and the story features in several documentaries, no doubt in part because James's memories were verified and the case has received much attention from skeptics, most recently philosopher Michael Sudeth. When he was 22 months old, James's father Bruce took him to an aircraft museum in Houston, Texas, where they resided. Not long after, James corrected his mother about the nature of an appendage on the bottom of a toy airplane. She remarked that it was a bomb, but he said no, it was a drop tank, a drop tank being an extra." fuel tank. Two months later, he began to have nightmares during which he would cry. Plane on fire. Little man can't get out. Gradually, he began to talk about his memories of dying when his Corsair came under fire. He said he had flown off a boat named Natoma. He drew pictures of boats and planes, signing them as James 3. He named G.I. Joe dolls Billy, Walter, and Leon because that's who met me when I got to heaven. James was so insistent with his apparent memories, Bruce said about their verification. To his surprise, he was able to trace them to a flyer named James Huston Jr., who had died when his plane flown off the Natoma Bay during World War II had been downed by Japanese fire off the island of Iwo Jima. Three squadron mates who predeceased Huston were named Leon Connor, Walter Devlin, and Billy Peeler. The step-at-goal interpretation starts with suggestions that James's memories were prompted by a Corsair he saw at the Flight Museum. However, there was no Corsair on display at the time of James' and Bruce's visit. The museum's Corsair had been lost in an air show six months prior to the visit and replaced only after it. As Tucker learned when he rang the museum, the plane in which Huston died actually was not a Corsair, although Huston had flown Corsairs in training. This sort of confusion sometimes appears in past life memories, according to James Matlock. And in any event, the error cannot be attributed to a plane he did not see, nor would the museum visit account for the many details James related correctly, such as his past life name, the name of the aircraft carrier, and the names of Huston's squadron mates. It is kind of creepy how accurate that was.
0: I was just going to comment. It is really creepy how accurate it is because we look in the Satanic Panic episode and kids were like, yeah, um, the daycare teacher was definitely flying.
1: Flying. (laughs) He flushed us down the toilet, down to the Yeah, and then there's
0: this kid, like, giving very specific memories about, like, aircraft and names and...
1: And these dolls are going to be named these guys because that's who I met in heaven.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's definitely something to it. And I've heard this story before. It's a very famous reincarnated yeah, probably is. one of the most famous ones the good one
1: uh, next is the case of Christian Hoppt. Christian Hoppt may have been the baseball player Lou Gehrig who Lou Gehrig's disease is named. But like all claims to have been famous people, this identification is controversial. Christian's mother, Kathy Byrd, told his story first in an article for her local newspaper and then in a book. But reincarnation researcher K.M. Weirstein has pointed out discrepancies in these accounts. Jim Tucker visited the family and briefly interviewed Christian, but was not impressed enough to carry out a full investigation. Nonetheless, the case includes behavioral features along with memories that suggest that if Christian was not Lou Gehrig, was another major baseball player who knew Gehrig well and the Gehrig identification cannot be ruled out conclusively. If it is valid, the intermission would be 67 years between lives. Without doubt, Christian was a prodigy of baseball. He loved the sport and from an early age had an incessant drive to practice his skills. At the age of two, he was given a cameo role in Adam Sandler's movie That's My Boy. No idea what movie that
0: is, never heard. I've never heard of it too, which is
1: strange. In September 2012, three weeks after his fourth birthday, he had the honor of throwing out the ceremonial pitch at the LA Dodgers game on a nightly basis. He shared with his family his memories of having been a tall baseball player. He said he had played for the New York Yankees, which is where Gehrig played, and that his favorite position was first base, which is what Lou Gehrig played. He said that he traveled between cities on trains and stayed in hotels. He expressed a long disdain for Babe Ruth, another famous Yankee player with whom Gehrig did not get along. However, none of the details are exclusive to Lou Gehrig. Apparently, a lot of people didn't like Babe Ruth. (laughs) They would apply to other baseball players as well. (laughs) The principal controversy is over whether Christian self-identified as Gehrig or whether the identification was imposed by his mother. Uh. In her book, Kathy Bird says that when she showed him a teen picture with Gehrig in it, he picked out Gehrig and said, that's me. But she doesn't mention that in her earlier newspaper art. Instead she says that Christian responded to a picture of Gehrig and Ruth with comments disparaging Ruth. In fact, it would appear that on that occasion, he avoided identifying Gehrig as himself. Christian said that Kathy was the reincarnation of his mother. If that is so, then a past life connection would convert this from a case with a stranger relationship to one with a family relationship. This would be true if he were recalling the life of another player, however, and so provides no support for the Garrick identification. I do like that these investigators who are actually trying to do the work in this are keeping their investigation work at the highest echelon. I mean,
0: you gotta. Yeah,
1: exactly. You gotta take it this serious.
0: Yeah, if you want your work to be taken seriously, you have to use, you know, it's yeah. A good thing. Good stuff.
1: This is a 1917 case out of Cuba. Eduardo Esplugas Cabrera. It's a nice name. It is a hard name to say. That is for splugas. sure. Esplugas. Esplugas.
0: I like the splugas in it.
1: It was first reported in a Puerto Rican paper, but concerned a Spanish family residing in Cuba. Their four-year-old son claimed to remember having lived before at a certain address elsewhere in Havana. He gave the name of his parent and two brothers. His own name had been Poncho, he said. he used to purchase medicine at an American chemist not far from his house. Eduardo described his memories in such detail his parents decided to test him by taking him to the address he cited. He appeared to recognize the building and went in. Then returned crestfallen to his family. The flat, he recalled, was now occupied by people he did not recognize. Upon inquiry, his father learned that a family of the complexion and name given by Eduardo had resided there until 1903, when their youngest son, Poncho had died. An American druggist shop still stood nearby at the time. and. Here's the story of Steven Stein. Shortly before she became pregnant with Steven, his mother dreamed about a boy with Latino features very different from her family's American stock. During her pregnancy, she had a craving for hot spicy foods, particularly traditional Mexican dishes. Steven had the appearance of the boy in his mother's dreams and, as it turned out, was fond of Mexican cuisine. On his first visit to a Mexican restaurant, he stood for a long period before a map that decorated the back wall, then pointed to a town and said that that was where he was from. He made. No more mention of his previous life though, until he watched a television documentary about the Siege of Alamo, in which the Mexican army had defeated American settlers in 1836. He pointed to a spot in front of the compound as the spot where he had been shot and killed. Around this time, he began to experience chronic retinal migraines at 30 steven had a drop seizure and lost all motor function in the lower part of his body for several hours he's the only member of his family to suffer from retinal migraines the only one with poor vision and the only one to have suffered seizures if the mexican shoulder was shot in the head this might be the origin of steven's symptoms for which no physical cause had been found with that one there was no actual description of how that previous life ended so it can't actually be confirmed that that's where that mm, came from
0: i was gonna ask are we sure that Stephen has the same? Father is the rest of the family if he looks so different.
1: Also, that uh it was a super vague case. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this one is super in detail. This is the one I said to go deep in detail on. It's going to be long and is the story of Kumkum. Kumkum Verma.
0: Where's the story coming from?
1: This is in India.
0: Nice. Okay.
1: Kumkum Verma was born in 1955, the third child of BK Verma and his wife Subhadra. They lived in Bahara, a village in northern Bihar near the city of Darvanga. Aged three and a half. Kumkum began speaking of a previous life in a family of blacksmiths in Urdu bazaar gradually other details emerged She had a son named misery lal also a grandson guri shankar She said that she had died because of an altercation poisoned by a daughter-in-law she has to be called Sunari, which in Mathili, the local dialect of bihari means beautiful. Later it was realized that she was trying to say Sundari. Kumkum's parents did not encourage her to talk of a previous life and ignored her request to be taken to Urdu Bazaar. They were alarmed at the strength of her feelings and feared the excitement of tracing the former family would make her ill. However, they did not try to suppress her talk. An aunt took an interest and made written notes of many of these details when Kumkum was about three and a half years old. This was before an attempt at verification took place, a few months later, when she was four, Kunkun's father mentioned her statement to a friend, Harish Chandra Mishra, a senior official in the estate of Maharaja of Dabranga. Harisha Chandra Mishra sent an employee to try to find a blacksmith named Gurishankar. The family was successfully traced, and Gurishankar's father, Mizri Law, confirmed that Kunkun's statements and behavior accurately conform to facts in the life of his mother, Sundari. Kunkun's parents would not allow Ms. Lal to meet the child, nor let her visit family in Urdu Bazaar. However, her father went to Urdu Bazaar once to meet members of the previous family and photograph people and objects he thought she might recognize. In 1961, a journalist visited both families and wrote a detailed report of interviews that he carried out with them. Two years later, Peepal, an Indian investigator and field assistant of Ian Stevenson, conducted his own interview and was furnished abstracts from Kum Kung Kum's aunt's notebook. Although the notebook itself was later lost, when the ant loaned it to a friend who did not return it. I don't like that part of the story, but nonetheless, apparently it is documented.
0: Must documented as it is.
1: Stevenson himself became involved in the case in 1964, when he re-interviewed Coom Kum parents and the aunt who had written down Coom Kum recollections. More interviews were carried out by Stevenson's team in 1965-1966. and 1966. Stevenson returned in 1969 and carried out additional interviews with all main informants. And to note, Coom by this time had lost nearly all the memories of the previous life. Stevenson's notes about the case in the first volume of this case of reincarnations type series published in 1975. Darbanga is a large city near India's northern border with Nepal. Sundari's family lived in the Urdu bazaar quarter of the city. Being members of a low class of small businesses and artisans, their paths would not have crossed with those of educated Vermas who lived in Bahira, a large village in the same district. About 40 kilometers from Darbanga, the Verma's farmed land and Kumkum's father also practiced as a homeopathic physician and wrote books. Sundari's family, by contrast, had little or no formal education. Doctor Verma said he had never been into Urdu Bazaar. The friend in Darbanga who helped trace the family did not know much about Urdu Bazaar and had not heard of Misri Lal Mystery. Doctor Verma said he did not discover any friend he and the other family had in common. Misery Lal said he never went to Bahira until doing business there in 1968 and did not visit the Verma's. His son Gouri Shankar said he first went there in 1959 to visit Kumkum after hearing that she was talking about the life of his grandmother. So, pregnancy experiences in this one. Kumkum's Kung mother had some unusual experiences while she was pregnant with Kumkum. She liked milk, fruit, and salty food more than was common for her or which she had experienced during pregnancies with her other five children. After Kumkum was born, she was especially fond of those foods.
0: Super interesting fact on the last two. I think the- that the mothers took on the cravings of what the people had in their past lives
1: exactly yeah that's at least in that other one uh, there wasn't enough information about the father to actually know anything about that
0: yeah but in this still one, an interesting point yeah that has been made a couple of times now if i mean once is interesting enough if it's a legitimate case but it's been twice just like a super strange kind of thing because it's not them
1: exactly it seems
0: to be coming through that it's so strong and maybe that's why the kids still remember memories maybe it's just really Strong with them.
1: I also find that interesting that in the interviews the mother found it important to say this like this was different about this birth and I had five oh, that's
0: true I mean I guess I would find it weird if I was like oh I like craved this one thing that I never craved and then my kid loved it I actually I don't know if I'd bring it up but they do so here we are talking yeah about I know that.
1: exactly <laughs> Sundari, it turned out, also was specifically fond of salty foods though she was not noted for liking milk or fruit. So, yeah, weird That's cravings true. that didn't necessarily correspond. During her pregnancy <laughs> though, Kumkum's mother also dreamed of a girl surrounded by snakes. She had no dreams involving snakes with her other children. Given that Sundari had a pet snake, this dream qualifies as an announcing dream, a dream which heralds a reincarnation. Physical traits. At her birth, Kumkum was noticed to have marks on the loaves of her ears in the place where earrings would have been attached. These markings correspond to Sindari's pierced ears. Kumkum's complexion was unusually fair for her family. As a child, she was slim and taller than other girls her age. Sindari had been tall, slim, and fair in complexion. Of 15 statements, including the excerpts from Kunkun's Koon aunt's notebook, pal was provided, all proved to be true or partially true of Sundari. These 15 statements are only part of Kunkun's Koon memories recorded by investigators. However, Stevenson's list of 56 different statements attributed to Kunkun, who was never taken to Dambala and had no contact with any member of the Sundari family except for the brief encounter with Sundari's grandson Gori Shankar when he visited Bahara. Kunkun's Koon statements that were verified as true for the life of Sundari include the following. My house was built of brick and had tiles. Unusual as people usually lived in houses of clay or mud and the house was on the road with a guava tree on the side, and plum, jalapi, and date trees around the other side. These details were all verified. There was a pond outside the house that I helped to create, having paid the workers who dug it out. The presence of a pond was not unusual, however, Sundari's son's wife confirmed that Sundari had sometimes paid the laborers. There was a temple of Shiva near the house. This was verified by Stevenson. There was a cinema near the house, where I went with the daughter-in-law. The cinema was 400 meters from the house. Sundari went there, often to see religious-themed dramas. Was. There was a safe at my house on the northern side of the house. The safe was in the room where Sandari slept, which was on the northern side of the house. My daughter-in-law had a gold chain. This probably referred to one of the ornaments Sandari's owned and lent to her daughter-in-law. Kumkum compared it to her mother's gold chain and said her chain was better, Sundari's chain. Kind of a dick move by a kid. Yeah. I had a sword hanging near my bed. Sindari had a sword on her bedroom wall, which would have been unusual for most Indians, although less so for a blacksmith. Kunkun said to never have seen or heard of a sword before making the statement. A snake stayed near the iron safe. It had a hood and the end of its tail was missing. Sindari had kept a black cobra as a pet in her room and it was still living in 1959. I fed the snake milk and Zala. The meaning of Zala could not be determined, but Sundari had fed it milk and cooked rice. A window of her home had iron bars. Misery Law said that her mother's bedroom had iron bars. And I'm gonna skip through these just cause there's a lot, but those are all, she made a ton of statements that kind of are in that light. Just kind of, they all are confirmed to be true.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And these were all made before they'd made contact with the family. Okay. She also had behaviors that match up very well with this family. Kumkum showed great emotions in narrating her previous life and often appeared distressed. She showed a strong impulse to go to Urdu Bazaar in Darbranga and once when her family were visiting the city, left the group walking determinedly along the road there. It was some time before her absence was noted and she had to be forcibly brought back. Kumkun told her siblings that if they would accompany, heard of her previous home she would give them money she showed anxieties about the welfare of Gorishankar. shankar on a holiday when gifts are customarily exchanged she asked for money to purchase gifts of clothing for her grandson and her (laughs) daughter-in-law Several of Kumkum's statements were triggered by incidents such as cooking or objects. For instance, her reference to her having a pond dug out and paying the laborers came when her father helped in an archaeological dig. The memories were often voiced as comparisons with the previous life, as when she complained she had less money than previously. Kumkum Kum showed an unusual interest in snakes. She was also fearless of them. Once when she was six, a cobra fell from her tree, causing panic among other children, but Kumkum Kum went up to the snake, patted it gently, and it crawled away the way. parents found her notably more religious than their other children, seemingly to know the proper procedures for religious ceremony at a very early age. Kumkun was more mature for her age than other children, willingly doing housework, feeding small children, and looking after sick persons. She would also tend to a child of a lower caste that other family members would not touch. She preferred the company of adults and sometimes adopted adult mannerisms, apparently speaking with the authority that she felt she retained from the previous life. kumkum's Kung family noted that she She also spoke Mathili with a different accent from that of her family, which appeared related to the lower class speech used by Muslims in Darbonga. Occasionally her phrasing of certain expressions also showed this influence. Just crazy what she was able to come up with. Yeah. And just like everything involved in this.
0: Yeah. At what point is not coincidence?
1: Well, at some point it's just hard to give any other reason for what's going on.
0: Yeah. I do also like how mundane the things that she's coming like that she's yeah. relaying about the life it's like there were bars on the window of this one room and it's like it's not one of those ones where yeah i was a famous person like it's just like this mundane person from another village that like just a regular person and she's just relaying like from a lower caste, to too that
1: you're not allowed yeah. to interact with So, like, she shouldn't know anything about that caste level.
0: Yeah, she talks like them, too. It's super cool. Yeah.
1: Stevenson argued that the considerable social gulf between Kumkum's educated parents and humble Muslim blacksmiths made any previous contact between the two families before Kumkum began speaking of a previous life very unlikely. The doings of the inhabitants of Urdu-Bazaar, and even its existence, were of little interest to people such as the Vermaas. Sundari led a relatively obscure life, and it is unlikely that events of her her life could have become known normally to a small girl in a village 40 kilometers away. The events Kumkum Kum described would have happened at least eight years before she was born. The difference in social class also makes it unlikely that the Vermas would embellish or invent such a connection. Like this family would not want her to be related to this lower class. Yeah. Even after the first verification of Kumkum's statements, there was much less contact between the two families than is usual in cases of this kind, and therefore less likelihood of cross contamination of witness testimony. Stevenson identified three features that he considered to strengthen the authenticity of this case. The written notes made of many of the child's statements six months before any verifications were made. The fact that Harish Chandra Misra, the person who traced the Sundari family, was not closely connected to the Vermas and had no connection whatever with the Sundari family, of whose existence he was ignorant of at the start of the inquiries. And third, that his own investigation essentially corroborated the facts revealed in two earlier investigations. So, like, this is probably one of the best cases to actually look at for investigation sense of what happened here and even better than the bomber in Iwo Jima because people were alive to verify these things on both sides yeah. so um, those are the cases I wanted to look at now there are definitely critiques of investigators in this area and the idea of reincarnation in general that I wanted to go over Stevenson was doing this for a long time he had people critique him in an article in skeptical inquirer Angel examined Stevenson's 20 cases suggestive reincarnation and concluded that the reason research was so poorly conducted as to cast doubt on all of Stevenson's work. He says that Stevenson failed to clearly and concisely document the claims made before attempting to verify them. Among a number of other faults, Angel says Stevenson asked leading questions and did not properly tabulate or account for all erroneous statements. And this is a direct quote. In sum, stevenson does not skillfully record present or analyze his own data if a case regarded by stevenson to be among the strongest of his cases the only case of 20 that had its purported verification conducted by stevenson himself falls apart under scrutiny as badly as the ahmad elwar case does it is reasonable to conclude that the other cases which data were first gathered by untrained observers are even less reliable than this one skeptics have written that stevenson's evidence has always been anecdotal and by applying Occam's razor, there are prosaic explanations for the cases without invoking paranormal. Science writer Terence Hines wrote, The major problem with Stevenson's work is that the methods he used to investigate alleged cases of reincarnation are inadequate to rule out simple, imaginative storytelling on the part of the child claiming to be reincarnated of dead individuals. In the seemingly most impressive cases, Stevenson has reported, The children claiming to be reincarnated new friends and relatives of the dead individuals. The children's knowledge of facts about these individuals is then somewhat less than conclusive evidence of reincarnation. There are people who do, however, talk in support of Stevenson. Ian Wilson, one of Stevenson's critics, acknowledged that Stevenson had brought a new professionalism to a hitherto crank prone field. Paul Edwards wrote that Stevenson has written more fully and more intelligibly in defense of reincarnation than anybody else. Though faulting Stevenson's judgment, Edwards wrote, I have the highest regard for his honesty. All will his case reports contain items that can be made the basis of criticism. Stevenson could easily have suppressed this information. The fact that he did not speaks well to his integrity. Almeter argued in Death and Personal Survival that Edwards had begged the question by stating in advance that the idea of consciousness existing without the brain in the interval between lives was incredible, and that Edwards' dogmatic materialism had forced him to the view that Stevenson's case studies must be examples of fraud or delusional thinking. According to Almeter, possibility of fraud was indeed investigated in these cases, and Edwards mentioned. In an article published in the website of Scientific America in 2013, in which Stevenson's work was reviewed favorably, Jesse Bering, a professor of science communications, wrote, Towards the end of his own storied life, the physicist Doris Coleman Wilsdorf, whose groundbreaking theories on surface physics earned her the prestigious Hain Medal from the German Society for Material Sciences, surmised that Stevenson's work had established that the statistical probability that reincarnation does in fact occur is so overwhelming that cumulatively the evidence is not inferior to that for most, if not all, branches of science. So, this person has their lovers and haters, and I think that's just what you're going to run into in this area.
0: Yeah, of course you are.
1: So I just have a few parting words to go over and then you can say what you want. And this is just talking about reincarnation in general. We're going to talk about some weird notes that people have found. Okay. The strongest contrasts are between European cases and Asian cases. Most European cases are weaker phenomenologically and evidentially than our Asian cases and intermissions tend to be longer. The median length of 26 solved European cases for which information is available is 24 months longer than the global median of cases cases in Stevenson's collection. The American cases are similar to the European cases in this respect. For the 16 solved American cases, for which reliable information on the intramission is available, the median interval between lives is 9.5 years. So it's weird that there's a cultural difference between how long it takes to- uh, That's super weird. Another pattern that European and American cases have in common is that intermission lengths are notably shorter in family and acquaintances cases than in stranger cases. In the European cases, the median intermission for family cases is 15 months, whereas for strangers cases, it is 13 years. In the American cases, the median intermission in family cases is three years, whereas with stranger cases, it is 40 years. This pattern is not evident in Asian cases, perhaps because the intermission in all cases is comparatively brief and there are fewer cases with family and acquaintance connections. With unsolved cases, the intermission length cannot be calculated precisely, but unsolved European cases often give the impression of having a past life many years before the present. The apparent median intermission in these cases is about 100 years. The apparent median intermission in unsolved American cases is roughly 30 to 50 years, similar to the median intermission of solved stranger cases. In accordance to the general pattern, there are a few American and European international cases of the 46. European cases two are international. Of the 35 American cases, three have an international connection. Reincarnation researcher James Matlock speculates that longer intermission in Western cases would allow spirits of the deceased to meet loved ones at their death, a Western expectation not shared by the rest of the world. Longer intermissions means greater difference between present and previous lives, presenting fewer cues to recall, which may help explain why European and American cases are relatively rare rare. I found this very interesting. Tucker and a co-author, investigated the relationship between gender identity and past life recall, analyzing 469 cases. It was found that children who remembered an opposite sex previous life were far more likely to exhibit gender non-conforming behaviors than children who reported past lives personalities of the same sex, suggesting that an influence on gender identity from past life memories. The conclusion of this work are complicated by an investigation of a boy from Thailand who was considered by family members be a reincarnation of his maternal grandmother on the basis of a supposedly shared birthmark the boy subsequently demonstrated cross-gender behavior this raised the possibility of influence of family and community expectations on gender identity development that may masquerade as past life influence some cases. He did look into gender dysphoria and its uh, impact from past lives, which I find super interesting.
0: That is very interesting because if you're remembering a past life so vividly, you could see it feeling wrong.
1: And the last thing I wanted to leave off with, this is just going to be super brief. I'm in fact just going to give a uh, brief statement because I want to do an episode on it later. Xenoglossy. Xenoglossy denotes the use of language unlearned in the present life. It can range from influence on an accent or other aspects of speech performance to the use of words and phrases without comprehension of their meaning, to the ability to converse in a completely unlearned language. Stevenson did connect this to past lives just without memories being used per se. So Xenoglossy, I would like to do its own episode on because I think that would be a fun episode, but that is where I want to leave that off. A whole lot of cases. There are so many more we could go over, but like we're running out of time right now, just going over the ones we did.
0: Yeah, I wonder if I should have brought it up when you're talking about it, but I wonder if the less time in Asian cultures between reincarnation Has to do with obviously in Asian cultures, there's much more of a belief in reincarnation.
1: So people are actually looking for it. Is that what you're getting at?
0: I don't know. Maybe just if you're carrying the belief forward, if it has to do with reincarnating sooner or the expect. You wouldn't think that that would go with a kid. There's something there though. There's a reason why no, it's less time. I get that. And it's cultural. So you would think that it has something to do with the be- such a yeah
1: no, but cultural I,
0: belief in I, reincarnation.
1: I, I did have something to say about that. And then I just realized that I would say, yeah, that would be why it's rare. But rarity actually has nothing to do with the amount of time it actually takes between the deceased life ending and the new life beginning.
0: Exactly. Maybe, yeah, it's hard to speak on. Like, uh, it wouldn't be know. a faux pas
1: to talk about it just because it happened so soon. That's the only... Or or it could be, because there is that kind of, like, grieving period. We actually have a fairly long grieving period.
0: In, yeah, and in that's Western the only society. correlation you can kind of make between the two.
1: But even then, that wouldn't impact what he called the intermission period. That would just impact, like, when you would actually start talking about it or making that correlation. Not necessarily um, how long the time between the lives would be.
0: That's a super interesting little tidbit that they're able to put together. I've never heard that before. The other thing with the where you're seeing 100 years between lives, it's almost like they could have fit a whole other life and they're remembering just a life that was strong, came through stronger than another one. But nobody actually knows how reincarnation works and how long you actually have between lives. I assume it varies. On lives how long before you reincarnate but yeah those are super interesting facts
1: yeah and of course i've left out of course the most famous um reincarnation cases of edgar casey and then oh what's his pumpkin bowl cut head pumpkin uh, cut david Wilcock. david Wilcock. yeah <laughs> <laughs> david Wilcock.
0: Um, of course are
1: just like of course team. we covered yeah, on a whole we've like, already done Ken those <laughs>
0: that i really like that episode that's super interesting way that i've never heard it put together before
1: and if we wanted to like we could do um an adult episode and a xyloglyph episode i'm sorry i I forget the word i always do
0: xenoglossy.
1: xenoglossy episode which I, i think we should do in the future both of those yeah and yeah like weird cases and there's people doing research into it. So it's interesting. I like it. And I will leave my opinion out until I read more about it. <laughs> okay. Because I'm glad it you does, say that. Because it does not impact my life yes. at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I have been Taylor here with Chelsea. We are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next week. Hey. Okay. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what